that your baby boy would one day walk on water. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save your sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? And this child that you deliver will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to the blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss the baby, you've kissed the face of God. Oh, Mary, did you know? The blind will see. That your baby boy will one day rule the nations. Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect land? And this sleeping child you're holding is the song. This is a great time of the year, isn't it? Time to reflect and to think on the birth of the Lord Jesus. Moms and dads, I'm under strict orders from Miss Pinkston and from my wife. Be brief. You know, as you think about the Christmas story, as it's written for us in Luke chapter 2, it's probably one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. 
it's read at Christmas plays and cantatas. It's uh, put it, uh, even the Charlie Brown Christmas Story has uh, Charles Schultz uh, included it in his rendition, which is a great movie, by the way, one of the greatest of all time Christmas movies. If Aaron was here, I would say it was an epic Christmas movie. <laughs> it's everywhere, isn't it? And even on TV and uh, little cards that you send out or snippets of this story in Luke chapter 2. Very familiar. And it's easy in those familiar passages where we feel so comfortable to kind of miss the point. And so this morning I want to run through the Christmas story. And I want to do it in a way that hopefully will highlight the, the passage. It will really bring the, the truth out for you and give you something to really chew on and think about as a family in this Christmas season. As I was thinking about this passage and uh, watching and listening to some of the Christmas uh, um, cantatas and things uh, that are current in our day, um, Amy and I were even watching one uh, this week. You know, I've, I was just shocked, really, saddened in a lot of ways. The Christmas pageants of our day have become so trivial, meaningless. We've ripped off the world's entertainment, and we call it worship. I mean, we've gone so far as to dress people up in all these funny costumes, clowns, and I've seen Christmas cantatas about Papa and Mama, and I've seen uh, about snowstorms, and I've seen, I mean, I've seen it all, and I'm sure you have. And in themselves, you know, they have some meaning, and they have some good message in them. But all of them fall and fail in comparison to Luke chapter 2. All of them. We'd be much better off reading Luke chapter 2 in segments and singing music. We really would. That's befitting the birth of a king. What God chose to write in Luke chapter 2. There are some secular or some, uh, some men who wrote good Christmas cantatas. Unfortunately, they're not very popular. This day and time. One that came to mind this week, and I listened to some, it's on, parts of it are on the internet, uh, been redone. Uh, Handel's Messiah, 250 years old. Written by Handel at the bottom of his career. He had hit rock bottom. He was rejected by the world. He was not popular. He had fallen out of vogue in London and in Europe. And he took a trip to Ireland, went to Dublin, and on arrival, he began to look at the Scriptures. Now, he was famous for writing. Don't, don't mistake this. He, he wrote a lot of music, and he wrote a lot of uh, oratorios and, uh, and orchestrations based around Scripture. One of his most famous uh, uh, is called Israel in Egypt. Another one, Joshua. So this wasn't something new for him to look at Scripture and write music. But he was so struck by the redemptive story as it came through the Old Testament all the way to Revelation that he sat down, pen in hand, depressed, ready to give up. And in 24 days, he wrote the Messiah. Arguably the greatest piece of music ever written anywhere. In 24 days, he refused meals. And he journaled when he got done writing the Hallelujah Chorus. In his journal, he wrote this. 
simple, short, to the point. When he finished, he said, I think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. When it was played for the royalty in England for the first time, the queen stood. The prince stood when it came to the Hallelujah Chorus. And to this day, if you're amongst a crowd and that piece of music strikes, you watch as people stand to their feet in reverence of the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As much as I like Charles Schultz, Charlie Brown Christmas, it falls short to the majesty. It wasn't written for that, was it? And what I'm trying to tell you is, instead of entertaining ourselves to death, as John Piper says, why not return to write great pieces of music and poetry and book for a king? And why not return to the kind of devotion it takes to say, I think I saw all of heaven before me and the great God Himself. That's inspiration. That's God at work in a man to bless the church. That's the story that we so flippantly read past as if it's just a byword now. Or we make so trivial that people laugh and joke about it. That's the Christmas story. God's great story. God moves nations to accomplish His purposes. We see this in the first five verses of Luke Chapter 2, look what it says. In these days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. God moves all of world history to accomplish His purpose. The Roman Empire. Caesar woke up and said, I think I'd like to know how many people live under my rule. And that thought didn't come at random. That thought came from God. God placed it there. You say, how can you be so certain? Because in Proverbs 21, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wills. What I'm trying to tell you is, in this story, we see that God moves whatever it takes to accomplish His purposes, including a wicked and evil dictator, Caesar Augustus. Even Syria, even Israel was brought around to position so that Christ might be born in Bethlehem. God could have chose a simple couple residing in Bethlehem. That city was the city of David. It was filled with David's descendants. Filled with David's descendants. There were a multitude of women who could have bore the child. And And God wouldn't have had to move anything. She could have lived in her own home, in the comfort of her own home. She could have been there. She could have had a child. Her husband could have said, it's not my son. It's a holy child. 
But God chose to arrange an entire empire. The whole world, as we would say, or as they would say, was moved so God might accomplish His purpose. And when did He state He would accomplish this? In in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In the prophet Micah writes, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. God said the King, Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And He moved the whole world to make it happen. God moves the whole world to accomplish His purposes. That's the great story of Christmas, isn't it? That our God moves the world. Nothing stands in His way to accomplish whatever He sees right in His eyes. That's the story, in some ways, of Christmas for us. He moves the whole world if necessary. God moves empires. God moves kings. God doesn't often take the direct route, does He? And He doesn't do it in your life either. One, one thing we know from research is that this is one of the most mournful times of the year. It's one of the most depressed times of the year for people who've lost loved ones. I was talking to my grandmother this week. Her husband, my grandfather, her husband of 58 years passed away two weeks ago. She's sad. You know what I was able to tell her this week? Mama, God doesn't always go the direct route to accomplish what He wants to do. Sometimes He moves the world to do something as simple as have His Son born in a city filled with descendants of David. Why did He have to bring this couple from Nazareth to their hometown? Why did He have to inconvenience all of the Roman Empire and the known world? Because He's God and He had purpose. It brought climax to the story, didn't it? It brought attention to Bethlehem, which never would have been gained any other way. God moves nations to accomplish His purpose. It's a great story in Luke chapter 2. Just in the first five verses, it's great. But we move on and we see in verses 6 through 7 that God made Himself poor for our sake. What makes it a great story that we tell at Christmas is that God Himself made Himself poor for us. Have you ever thought about that? Stopped and really contemplated as we run through the story and we read in verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to a firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, common, common swaddling clothes. Not silk, not wool, not an expensive garment, cloth. Mean, simple, basic cloth. It got the job done, but it wasn't extravagant. There was, I don't imagine it was embroidered. I bet it didn't have his initials on it. It was just swaddling clothes. And she laid him, not in a bed, not in a crib, in a cattle trough filled with hay for donkeys and mules and cows and sheep so that he might stay warm. God became poor. For you. The great part of this story is God moves the world to accomplish His purposes. He does it in unconventional ways like becoming poor for you. That's amazing if you think about it. What happened for Christ in this split second? 
He went from the throne room of heaven in the Holy of Holies, dwelling in unapproachable light, to the womb, warm womb of a woman. And he grew there to gestation and was born into a cold, rough hewn cave with a bunch of sheep and oxen. He became poor so that you might be rich, the Bible says. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, listen to these words, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. For your sake He became poor. So that through His poverty, you might become rich. The great story that God wants to tell us in Luke 2, far from being some nursery rhyme or some simplistic story told about some simplistic child born in some simplistic city, the story He wants to tell is I accomplish my purposes. Nothing stands in my way. I don't do it conventionally often. I move around in ways you could never imagine or dream of. And I'm willing to go to any depth, any length to reach you. I'm willing to give up the riches of my inheritance in heaven so that you might have them. It would be unbearable to think He gave that up for no purpose, but the fact that He gave it up for a purpose, for you, makes it a great story. Just a man going from rich to poor is not a great story, but a man willing to give up everything for the poor. We had an example of that. We often do at Christmas, don't we? A worldly example, much smaller scale, but still in our day a huge thing. Kyle Turley, a long-time lineman in the NFL this week. Did you see the press conference? As he brought in the aged and the, dis, the you know, deformed ex-players from the NFL who at their best, some of them made $20,000 a year. And they were maimed. They were disfigured, many of them. They lost use of arms and legs. And the NFL's done nothing for these people. Nothing. And Kyle Turley finds out about it. And in this Christmas season, he gives away hundreds of thousands of dollars to take care of their medical needs. And he said this as he stepped to the microphone. He said, I've made millions of dollars over the last decade in the NFL. Through the tears, he said, I wish I'd have saved every dime so I could give it to these men. And what I'm telling you is that God Himself had the treasure of heaven at His disposal and He gave it up so you might have it. Now, you think Kyle Turley's a great story and I agree with you, but it pales in comparison to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ gave up heaven, gave up the unbroken fellowship with His Father so that He might be poor and born in a stable, in a cold, dark, lonely village outside of Jerusalem on that night. And why did He do it? So you might be rich. So you might have eternal life. No regret for Him 
like it was for Kyle Turley. He didn't say, well, I spent most of it, but you can have what's left. Which is a nice gesture, by the way. I'm not bashing Kyle Turley. He's doing more than most. But Jesus said, I haven't spent any of it. I'm willing to give it all to you. Think about it. It's a great story we're talking about. It's a great story worthy to be told. That God moves and accomplishes His purposes by whatever means necessary. He'll go around in unconventional ways to make His way happen. His son born in Bethlehem is a proof of that. And He'll make Himself, He'll let nothing stand in His way. He became poor so that we might be rich. It gives new meaning to the passage when Jesus tells His disciples after they make this great pledge to follow Him wherever He goes, when He turned and said, Foxes have holes, birds of of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Compare that to Luke chapter 2. It never changed for Jesus, did it? No room in the inn. No room. No place for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was born in a cattle stall. But that's not all we see in the story. God desires you to be joyful without fear. If you're at Luke chapter 2, turn back one page to Luke 1, and I want to show you how many times God says, don't be afraid in the Christmas story. First of all, in verse 13, He appears to Zechariah, the, the, the priest, the father of John the Baptist. This is, and an angel appears to him and he says, the angel does, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will have a son. You shall call his name John. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Do not fear. Look in verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Don't fear, Mary. You know, their reaction is the same. They all fall on the ground. They're all afraid. They're all scared to death. And the angel says the same thing. Don't be afraid. Look in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not. Don't be afraid. God doesn't desire that you be afraid. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have great joy. What makes it a great story is God is in the business of taking away your fear and replacing it with joy in this Christmas season. He wants you to have joy. As a matter of fact, Jesus came to conquer our greatest fears. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in 2, verse 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself... Likewise, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus doesn't desire for you to be fearful this Christmas season of anything. He wants you to have joy. And how do I know it? Because he came to defeat the greatest enemy you or I will ever know, death. If you're not afraid to die, what are you afraid of? Jesus would say, you're not afraid of anything. 
I'm not talking about being brash in your flesh and saying I'm better than everybody else and I'll, I'm strong and I can... No, I'm saying, I'm saying I'm in Christ. Therefore, even death can't hurt me, so what else could ever hurt me? It's a life that can be lived fearless. And it's no mistake that God continually told people when He appeared or an angel appeared, don't be afraid, don't be scared, fear not. Jesus said, be anxious for nothing. Don't you know your Father knows your needs? And if He supplied for the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air, He'll supply for you also. Don't be anxious about what you'll wear or what you'll eat or what you'll drink. God knows you need these things. Paul said, don't be afraid, didn't he? And then he followed that up with rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. God's not intent on you being fearful this Christmas season. Not fearful of and having anxiety over family or anxiety over, over, uh, over what you will eat. He's not designed that you have anxiety over the in-laws coming to town or, or your mom or dad coming to town. He's not designed that you be afraid of anything because He came to conquer your greatest enemy, death, and He's rendered that enemy powerless. So what are you afraid of? He's not interested in you being afraid to share the message of His good news. Because what's the worst they can do to you? Kill you? Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill your body. Fear the one who can rather cast your both body and soul in hell for eternity. What are we waiting on, church, in this Christmas season with the doors wide open? What are we waiting on? What are we afraid of? We're afraid our God can't overcome obstacles? Well, I'm telling you, He moved the whole world to have His Son born in Bethlehem. You're afraid He's above you and He's too far away from you, but I'm telling you, He came near to you and was born in a manger. You're saying to me you're afraid of what your boss might say or your fellow employees might say or your family member might say, and I'm telling you, He already conquered death. What's the worst they can do? Kill you? Now, I'm not talking about being frivolous. I'm talking about having the attitude of Christ. Fearless. Filled with joy. God came to fill us with joy. And what is joy? Joy is not some frivolous happiness. Joy is the deep-rooted emotion and mental state of affection for Christ. That's joy. So therefore, you can be knelt down by your bed weeping over the death of a child or a mother or a father or a friend or the loss of a job or the burning down of your house or whatever it may be. In your world today, you can be weeping over that and yet filled with joy. Filled with joy. Because joy is not about smiles. Joy is about the root of your life in Christ. And you saying, nothing else matters now. I have Christ. So I have it all. That's the great story. That's the great story of our great God. And I don't want to... I don't want to move on without or in this message without saying that God, fourth thing I want you to see is that God grants peace to those whom He is pleased with. This is the traditional rendering of the passage the angels spoke to the shepherds. And it's traditional because of the King James in English, because of the King James rendering of verse 14. But look at verse 12 through 14. And 
If you have King James, it reads a little different. And this will be assigned to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with this angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, actually is peace among those with whom He is pleased. I want to shocked you a little this morning when I say Christmas is not a joyous occasion for all the world. The lost world does not celebrate the birth of Christ. They may celebrate consumerism, but they don't celebrate the birth of Christ. It doesn't make their hearts glad to hear that God became a man, put on flesh, was poor, lived a perfect life, died and was resurrected from the dead. That doesn't give them chill bumps. It doesn't make them happy. It doesn't make them joyful. Christmas brings true peace only to those who belong to Christ. That's what the passage said. The angels did not say that peace is toward everybody. No, God's still at war with those who do not accept His Son and believe in Him. God's at war with them. The Bible in the Old Testament says He hates the wicked. He hates the wicked every day. Continual action. He hates them. He has never stopped hating them. So it's not peace to every one of those men. It's peace to those who believe in Christ. The angel came to speak peace to those who would believe, not to the whole world. You say, well, I don't like that. Well, John 1 says it this way, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the power or the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born, listen to this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. The only people who the Christmas story speaks peace to are those who are born of God. Those who are saved. Lost people find no peace, no comfort, no hope in this message. It's good news to those who believe. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Well, let me tell you the response of the world to when Christ was born. John writes in John three nineteen, This is the judgment that the light has come into the dark world and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. The fact is, far from stopping with no room in the inn, the bottom line is, for some of you, you have no room in your heart for Christ. And so the message of Christmas is not peace for you. The message of Christmas is judgment. You know why it's judgment? Because God's light has shone on you, and you hid in the shadows because you were evil and you want to be evil. You want to continue to be evil. You hate God, truth be known. You hate His Christ. And you have no intention of bending the knee and worshiping Him. And I say to you, the message of Christmas is a declaration of war to you. God has said, I'll take down every one of their strongholds. My church will never be stopped. I will conquer this world. I will have a kingdom. My son will reign. And those in the kingdom will be those who believe in Him. Those who or my enemies will be deposed forever into the lake of fire. So the Christmas message is a double-edged sword. 
To those who believe, it is sweet peace. To those who reject it, it is a declaration of war. God has said, I win. Evil loses. That's the Christmas story. That's what makes it so great. Not that people don't believe it, but that God would still speak it to those who would never believe. The fact that you, lost man or woman or child, are sitting here hearing this message tells me how great God is. That He would suffer you any longer to sit and listen to a message of the Gospel. It means He is a good God. He is a loving God. He is a merciful God. But don't mistake His mercy for lack of will, lack of resolve. Don't mistake it for weakness. He is the Lord God omnipotent. Powerful. The Christmas message is a great message finally because God ordains the common men like me and you tell the story. That's what makes it a great story. Common men tell an uncommon story. We are apostles, little a, not big A. We are apostles, messengers. We have good news. And thank God He didn't enlist the intelligent, the beautiful, or the capable. He enlisted those who to the world are fools, failures, outcasts, leftovers, genetic discards, <laughs> weak people. That's who He chose. And He did it at that first Christmas night because He went to the shepherds. He didn't go to Herod's palace. He didn't go to Caesar Augustus' palace. He didn't go to the governor of Syria. He went to simple shepherds. You know why they were camping out with their sheep? Besides the fact they watched their sheep. You know, sheep herd on their own naturally. You know why they slept out there? Because nobody wanted them. Because they smelled bad. They didn't have a lot of money. They worked hard, so they were tired. They weren't that fun at a party. They were outcasts. What would you do to be an outcast to see that heavenly host? Can you imagine laying under a starlit night outside of Bethlehem with sheep? And there's a shining star. Well, it's not a star, it's talking. That's an angel. Fear. Fear not. I bring you good news because you are at peace with God. And then when the message is there, the choir of heaven breaks forth. We get chill bumps listening, to, or I do, listening to Handel's Messiah. I'm telling you, when the Hallelujah Chorus comes to the climax, 50 movements of music have gone by, two and a half hours. It's strictly Scripture from beginning to end. Every word comes straight from the Bible. And when they get to the end, no matter how many times I hear it, and those instruments begin to play the Hallelujah Chorus. And we rise to our feet. I say, that's got to be what the choir of heaven sounds like.
But these simple shepherds got to see the choir of heaven. Some people estimate 100,000 angels filled the sky and belted forth their voices. All for common men, unwise, untrained outcasts. What makes this story great is you don't have to be trained. You don't have to be intelligent. You don't have to be good looking. You don't have to be persuasive. You have to believe in Jesus Christ and then you are commissioned to tell the story. You are commissioned. It's true. You're commissioned this morning. In the presence of God this morning, you are being commissioned. And I want to send you out with this commission that Paul wrote so many years ago when he said in verse 25 of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were a noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even like a shepherd, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in His presence. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so what I say to you at the close of the greatest story ever written in Luke chapter 2 is this. God has commissioned you this Christmas and every day the rest of your life to tell the greatest story ever written. That we, our God, broke down and became humble in the form of a man, even a servant, was born in a manger, lived a sinless life, was nailed to a cross, gave up His Spirit, took on Him your punishment and my punishment, and went to the grave and defeated our greatest enemy, death and hell and the devil. And He's risen from the dead. And God has risen, raised Him to the highest seat, the throne of heaven. And He is Lord and He is King of all kings and all lords. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is the Lord. The only question left for you is, do you confess it today? Because if you don't confess it today, God is not at peace with you and you can have no true peace. And eternity waits at your door this morning. So what will it be? Will you be enlisted? Will you be a messenger? Will you count yourself among the shepherds and the poor and the needy and the unwise of this world? And will you say, I'll tell this story? Because it's the greatest story ever told. I'll tell it because it deserves to be told. I'll tell it because God has saved me by His Son. If you take that commission, like the shepherds, you will leave singing the praise of God Almighty, returning to your daily grind with an uncommon, not-of-this-world peace, To be able to look the world in the eyes and say, I know who my Redeemer is. I know that He lives. And one day in the flesh, 
I shall see him. That's what I'm calling you to, church. As you close the chapter on 2007 and open 2008 in a short time, what I'm asking you to do is commit yourself to telling this great story. Because the days are short. The harvest is plentiful. Will you be a harvester? Will you tell the story? Let's pray. Father, as we close this time in your word, we simply say...